0: I don't think that those of us who are attracted to men can actually like, I, I, I don't think that there is like a way to resolve that <laughs> inside ourselves until we acknowledge that what we are in love with is not something bad, right? Like that our love is not bad. And this is true for, you know, people, you know, whoever you love, like, you know, our, our attractions are not sinful, are not harmful, are not dirty, right? There are harmful, shameful acts that can occur, but you know, what we love is, um, is good and and is beautiful and that's what sex work you know did for me which is pretty cool.
1: That was Kai Cheng Tom. We recently spoke about her newest book of poetry, Falling Back in Love with Being Human, which is a series of poems that are love letters to people who are hard to love. And that includes herself. Kai Cheng Tom is an award-winning writer, performance artist, and community healer in Toronto. She was a finalist for the Lambda Literary Award and won the Writers' Trust of Canada's Dane Ogilvie Prize for lgbtq 2 emerging writers for her surrealist novel Fierce Femmes and Notorious Liars, a Dangerous Trans Girl's Confabulous Memoir. She's also the author of several other books, including another poetry collection, an essay collection, and two children's books. Kai Cheng writes the advice column, Ask Kai, advice for the apocalypse for extra. It's important to note for this conversation that Kai Cheng is out about having done sex work in her 20s, and she writes about it in her most recent book. Kai Cheng, I'm so excited to have you here. This was, I don't know how, but your, your most recent book, Falling Back in Love with Being Human was my introduction to you. And I'm so grateful to be introduced to you. Yeah. yay! <laughs> okay. Well, thank
0: you for making that connection. And also thank you for having me on the podcast. Uh, yeah. You know, this book is my first out in a few years. So I think it's like people are people who I have not connected with before are meeting me for the first time. through it.
1: That's awesome. So I, I want to get to it, but I want to give Readers, just a a little bit of an introduction to you too. I think that it will help situate the book as well. So I like starting this podcast in in similar ways. I steal this from On Being. I'll I'll just say that. Um, So can you just tell people about your spiritual roots? Like, where did you start?
0: Yeah, thank you for asking. Nobody asks me about my spiritual roots, but they're so weird. So I grew up in Vancouver, Canada. And my parents are both the Southern Chinese, uh, like, descendants. So, yeah, like a lot of Chinese people, we have, like, weird kind of spiritual, like, eclectic spiritual roots that are, like, a mishmash of Chinese folk practice that comes from Taoism and animism. And then layered on top of that is some buddhist stuff uh mostly from my dad's side and then mostly from my mom's side there is like a heavy dose of like chinese christian evangelicism. so and yeah i would say that that christian part was like the dominant like spiritual aspect of my upbringing but certainly i also grew up around like buddhist iconography and chinese folk iconography also like the, the kind of very eclectic pieces are that i was raised partially um, by a babysitter who was Catholic. So I have some Catholic stuff. And then for some time, I went to an Anglican school. So I have some Anglican stuff also. And I mean, my child brain was not like denominating all this. I was just sort of sure. like, yeah, this guy named Jesus, <laughs> you know, like <laughs> everyone seems into this Jesus guy. So yeah, it was all very mixed And I would say the last piece of that is that I've always been like a very like witchcraft inclined person. So there was always some, like, there was always like an aspect of like the personal mysticism to Mm -hmm. what I was doing. I was growing up in the 90s. I really like charmed, you know, so all Mm -hmm. of that is who I am. Fun.
1: I wonder too, if, you know, when you, when you grow up with this um, cultural hodgepodge, you know if it keeps you a little more flexible about what spirituality is going to mean to you and because it it's a little less rigid than you know one path
0: does that mm. ring true to you yeah for sure it does i think um like a gift of like the east asian kind of spiritual paradigm that i am familiar with anyway is that like eclecticism has been like a big part of it for a long time. Mm, so of mm-hmm. course, like missionary Christianity, uh, you know, claimed many people um, in China and Korea and other parts of East Asia. But I think thanks to like the way that Buddhism and before that Taoism worked, like there was like a, there's like a general attitude of like, to a certain extent, you can layer things on top of one another and they do kind of make sense. So yeah, I definitely grew up with a certain amount of openness but paradoxically, I mean that openness only extended so far, and yeah. like I definitely had some of the more widespread conservative Christian dogmas inside of me. You know, like it would took a it's wh- mm-hmm. it's it, it, you know it took a while, and it still sometimes shows up where I struggle with that like very specific kind of homophobia or you know, um, kind of sexual conservatism that pops up in um, a lot of Christian denominations.
1: Sure, yeah. I mean, and I, I don't know that you can escape it, even if you don't grow up in a in a household that practices Christianity in any form, right? Because it's just true. such, <laughs> yeah, part of the culture. Um, Where is there any other like moment that comes to mind? If like, if you were going to sort of describe like your your spiritual ladder to somebody, but, assuming that you continue to evolve into who you are right now as a spiritual being. Was there any Ooh. other wrong that comes to mind that like f- feels particularly important to you,
0: oh yeah, yes, I mean being gay, you know <laughs> like, <laughs> <laughs> That's
1: it, so, yeah, it's a wrong, plus
0: <laughs> exactly, exactly, you know, using the term gay spaciously, right, like you know every sure. kind of queer or whatever I'm trans, but I'll to say gay anyway, but um, yeah, and I have my whole theory about this, which you know I've like expounded upon at length in public, so I'll just keep it short, but I will say. Like, there's kind of like a double spiritual awakening, I I think, that happens for a lot of queer Mm -hmm. people, where, you know, if you're raised in some form of religion that doesn't like queerness, then you um, have the knowledge of that sort of external divine that's telling you, you know, don't be gay. But then inside of your body, you have this undeniable calling, you know, towards something greater. And if we're able to um, integrate that and come out and, you know, be okay with ourselves as queer, then that's like... um, then we have to reckon with the divinity that is within, right? Like this, like, inexorable Mm -hmm. force that pulls you to change your entire life. You know, Uh, like, it's such a transcendent thing, this call to, you know, lead uh, queer trans lives. And so, uh, you know, I see that as, like, enormously, like, a part of my spiritual development um, and, like, my, my... my interest in like things like witchcraft as well like like a, a knowing that comes from the flesh that cannot be denied and then also does if you follow it take you on some very amazing adventures you know
1: <laughs> totally yeah and you sort of just like leave people behind in a way oh yeah <laughs> yeah i so i was rereading your your note to the reader before mm. before jumping on and i feel like it it's so it's so fitting but what why don't you just start Describe describe the book that you just wrote. Oh, yes. uh, I'll make you do it, and um, and why now?
0: Oh, thank you. Yes, uh, falling back in love with being human is uh, a collection of love letters. Um, ostensibly to people, places, and things that I find difficult to love. And over the course of the writing, um, you know, I think about half of the letters actually in some way to myself because I find myself very difficult to love, as many people do. And then the other half are, um, yeah, to like external, usually like people or groups, right? So there's a letter to trans-exclusionary radical feminists. There's a letter to J.K. Rowling. But all of the project is united by this quest to you know, love the unlovable, essentially, right? And, um, you know, there's something so important for me about folding in, you know, the self with, with like that basket of things that is unlovable that we are trying to love anyway, and you know this is a, has been a theme for me for a while like when something is unlovable like really if you find it disgusting or repulsive or monstrous why should you love it anyway i mean there are so many reasons but this is like a big spiritual question right and and the the route to finding something to finding love for something that one struggles with so much is faith not mm-hmm. faith in any particular religion necessarily although some religions help but like faith in human beings faith in ourselves you know faith in like the redeemable nature of the spirit and you know as i'm talking you can probably hear like the christian undertones so so like you know this is where um you know my christian background um, and, and like the notion of grace does really creep into the love letters and um you know my my more buddhist kind of background also kind of enters with this idea of paradox like loving the unlovable and being okay with more than one truth at the same time that we do love the unlovable and that hum- the human being is you know deeply violent and deplorable but also sacred and amazing right and then you know the form of the letters is like they're intense like they're poetic and they were modeled after um, litanies actually so there is like a spiritual aspect to the form uh, of the book as well
1: you know it's <laughs> talking about the christian themes in it
0: hmm.
1: it's it's obviously there you know but mm-hmm. you you talk about how a part of it is recognizing and holding people's inherent goodness. And and I think that that's much more Buddhist, <laughs> at least, <Yes. laughs> you know, yeah, it's, it's, it's a wrestling, right? With like what Christianity wants grace to be and struggles mm. with, and then, you know, what probably Buddhism like wants us to see and possibly even like avoids the, the confrontation of, it's a book of intense kindness. Hmm attempting to recognize the the goodness and humanity both in ourselves and in those who are hurting but then also in those who are causing the pain who are also hurting themselves and I think about it a lot in terms of like Loretta Ross's desire to to create a culture of calling in
0: oh yes yeah Loretta Ross is amazing in that way Yeah. Mm -hmm. (laughs)
1: yeah and hard to hard to replicate
0: (laughs) oh extremely yes i mean she's incomparable (laughs) right
1: (laughs) yeah (laughs) have you have you had any criticism or or pushback on either the book or just you know the messages within it
0: yeah yes um not as much as i might have expected um Mm -hmm. And maybe it's because I have been kind of on this beat for like mm-hmm. uh, you know a few years now. Before before falling back in love with being human, I published uh, a much more straightforward book of essays called "I Hope We Choose Love," which was mm-hmm. uh, like kind of like prototypical, you know, of, of some of the ideas in falling back in love with being human. And um, okay, yeah, so no, but also I would say I will say where I've really experienced I think more serious pushback, like is Its not about the ideas in the book or like the book itself, but where I have um, actually embraced conversation with mm-hmm. um, people that are considered you know you know, unspeakably bad by uh, you know people in my own community and vice versa right like you know i've done a lot of dialogue work, and I hope to do more right like with people who are of different political persuasions than myself and my primary audience and i think that is where you know people are people will say oh yes catching well and good that you're into this love stuff but like but when i actually start to have the conversation that's when people start to get scared which you know makes mm-hmm. sense to me
1: yeah makes sense i'm trying to decide if that's like a rabbit hole to keep going down
0: <laughs> yeah that's fair no um, take your time yeah <laughs>
1: yeah well so talk about talk about combining that into I mean this book and possibly even past books of like where you have these sending side by side you have this book of letter to JK Rowling and then you have letters to the fallen trans women and holding space for for everyone in the, in the same space like how what what is that like for you
0: mm. Well, it simultaneously feels impossible and heartbreaking Mm -hmm. and also like my normal (laughs) day-to-day, you know, Mm -hmm. because Mm -hmm. that attempt um, to hold space in the book or, you know, in one's heart for J.K. Rowling and, you know, trans women who have been murdered or fallen, right, like... um, and for and for sex workers and for shooters right like all of that kind of stuff um that is you know a microcosm of the project that is living in the world <laughs> which is that we only have one um and we have to share it unfortunately right so yeah it, it it's 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 painful i think mostly it's painful because because it feels like something we should be able to do. But then, yeah. you know, in practice, we can't. And, and that's a paradox that I, I really struggle to resolve inside myself, right? Like, when, when, when one is a child and being taught things or even watching, you know, the Disney movies or whatever, um, there is this idea, you know, or was it in the 90s about like world peace and like kind of moving toward mutual understanding. And of course, you know, real life adult politics are much more complicated than that. But also, there is still this part of me, like maybe a very young part that's like, but why should it be more complicated than that, right? Like, really, like, why do we have to dominate and murder people, (laughs) you know, in order to maintain our, you know, capitalist lifestyles? Uh, And what if we did actually just stop, you know, like, you know, what are are the billionaire class actually thinking? And why are they they doing things the way they're doing? Why is the military industrial complex, you know, doing what it's doing? It's very complicated questions, but I think, but it feels like there should be some answers and I think that is the core of faith right like even though we Mm -hmm. can appreciate how complex things are I think we have to remember that faith says you know actually another world is possible Um, otherwise Mm -hmm. we would not be imagining it
1: yeah yeah that's beautiful um all right this is gonna feel feel like a weird can we can we transition to talking about sex work
0: oh hell yes (laughs) okay
1: Something that comes up with me around this is, I mean, I have so many friends that I talk to all the time about, like, how do you handle this weird juxtaposition between teaching, mostly cis men, how to have better boundaries, better asks, how to be decent people. Yeah. (laughs)
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, That's a tough one for me. But like, (laughs) and then, Also, I mean, I I have friends that are people of color, they're doing it, who like have racist clients who like really want to see them and really Mm -hmm. seem to like them as humans, but have to be taught all of these ways that they're being racist, you know, and yet it's, it's the service like that we render in order to, because people are lonely, because people are, are, are heartbroken and, and need the solace or the comfort or the physical touch or whatever, um. But, all right, there was a question in here. There was a question of holding that space for somebody in a really complicated way, you know? Mm -hmm. So, Mm -hmm. I mean, I I guess I'm – and I just want to point out, I feel like you are of of such a – there's such a huge percentage of people who end up leaving sex work to go into therapy (laughs) – (laughs) <laughs> yeah, You know, because it's the same work. It's just like a it's different way. overlapping, yes. Yeah. So I, I guess, like, what did you learn from your 20s when you were doing sex work of, like, of holding that space for people while also being, like, their their teacher in a way of what it means to be a, a compassionate human, you know?
0: Hmm yeah well <laughs> it's like it's it's a big swirl in my mind but I think what I yeah. learned um, uh, okay I think some of like the, the really core lessons I'm going to try to boil it down to three because three is a magic number I think the number yeah. one lesson which is really embedded in in the sex work poems in the book um, is this thing about like Everybody sort of knows – it's like a trope that if you go way down deep into, like, the layers of a human being, then there is, like, a frightened, you know, like, young person on the inside, right, just, like, longing Mm -hmm. for tenderness. But even therapists, you know, having been one, actually very rarely get to see all the way inside, like, the onion of a Mm -hmm. human being – Mm -hmm. sex workers on the other hand get to see really deep inside the onion because sex work is this like weird magical uh, also quite scary sometimes zone where all of like the shadows of people just emerge because sex is also that place right and so when you bring together the stigma of the market of sex and then sex itself it all just emerges so people's like violence comes out there of course their fetishes come out their personal hygiene habits emerge um right their spending habits uh, you know like people bring all of their shame to sex workers Mm. and so you know i think it is this uh, i feel like there's nothing else in the world like it like where you're really just maybe six to seven to ten times a day right just meeting like the core of the onion of like human beings and particularly mostly men right like and I think the lesson in there is that, like, there is actually so much tenderness that is possible if you can get all the way to the center of the onion. But, you know, there are some layers that are particularly distasteful, right, before you get there, which are, like, maybe some violent stuff or some entitlement stuff or some misogynist stuff. But, like, if you keep on going, <laughs> then, you know, maybe you'll get there. So that that's really lovely. I, I think some other things I learned from, like, two other – like yeah, the second thing I learned is that, like – um. Like, the profound amount of, like, masquerade that happens in this world. Like, you know, as a sex worker, I think, again, more than most other industries, you learn that appearances are, like, everything. Like, you could Mm -hmm. be doing the same service in a hotel room... Or you could be doing it in someone's car and like mm-hmm. the way that you make like the amount of money you make the respect that you get or you don't from clients um, is vastly different but you know you're, you you'd be the same girl right like you could be the same person um doing exactly the same thing but like that kind of you know pretend you know is is, is everything and that i realized actually was about um, making middle-class and wealthy men feel safe. Like, actually, mm. like the class thing in sex work is so much about, like, does the man feel safe, <laughs> right? Which is, like yeah, that again, I just realized how terrified, you know, that they were, which was a reflection of how terrified I often am in my intimate situation. So yeah, I mean, number one, people are good way down in the middle, like vulnerable and tender. Two, like, you know, men are actually just mostly terrified beings. They're just very, very scared. And then third, I mean, I think the most important thing, I don't know if it was a really important thing was like, like that everybody, every, every gender, you know, marginalized person, but particularly like feminized, people is like we are all performing sexual labor like at all times right like like what I found astounding which isn't so much in the book is like that I mean at least when I was like more comfortable like when I was and when I was you know when my business was established as a sex worker, a lot of Mm -hmm. the people who saw me treated me way better than like the people I dated treated me. And that was astounding. Like I was like, oh my God, this is so much about like value. And like, you know, like like we're all doing the work. We're all in so much danger all the time. But what you have in sex work when it's going well is like an agreed upon set of like containers like that you put the work in. And that actually can make the experience just way better and it says something about how the world is extracting um, sexual work from gender marginalized people all the time
1: no that's fascinating I think um, I tend to feel safer when I see a client than when I'm dating because like people my clients obviously um, have agreed to they've agreed to be screened they've agreed to my rules or whatever and I mean you know
0: you can't do that on Tinder.
1: Like, can I run no, a background send check you a
0: picture on you? A <laughs> photo of your driver's license, ad, right? Yeah, like, you won't do it. They'll be like, "Why?" But that you know, it's it's amazing because the amount of danger, the risk you say is, you know, like the same or more. Yeah, you're yeah.
1: You <laughs> There's also the sense too, and it's weird. Like, I feel quite a few of my friends. Like, I mean, you know, we work under different names, and yet sometimes those names end up being like, the most authentic parts of us, you know? Um, Mm, mm -hmm. And there's a sense that, like, the clients, my clients know me in certain ways that, like, other people, even people I'm dating might not, that's not true. My People I'm dating know everything about me, but, like, people that I'm, (laughs) like, hooking up with on Tinder don't. Um, Right. But because this is, like, something that I'm choosing to do very authentically and genuinely to connect with somebody, and I feel like with hookup culture, you don't, you don't care as much about the peeling the onion.
0: Yeah. You're just like, maybe like smashing the onion. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going home. It's funny.
1: Yeah. yeah. I don't know. I feel like I just made that about me, but the, the sexual labor, I don't know. Was there anything else you wanted to say about that, about like, how does that breed into culture in other ways besides sex work that you, you start to see more and more?
0: Oh, yeah, totally. Well, I mean, first of all, I, w- I love it that, you know, you brought your own personal, you know, we're, <laughs> sure. like, it, that just makes it so much more exciting, right? Oh, and like, yeah, good. <laughs> you know, to have, like, two people of the industry experience is great to have on, you know, but, um, like, yeah, I guess I would say, like, again, sex works happens in so many forms. And, you know, I, I again, the more kind of class status that you're able to kind of, mm. you know, portray the, you know, I think the you know, the smoother of an experience or the more, at least, you know, enriching, uh, like in terms of money, like experience can be more lucrative. Right. But uh, I think it's like, we're talking about like a certain kind of like a ritual set of uh, like agreements. Right. Mm -hmm. And in dating and hookup culture, until you get to like real intimacy and trust that ritual is not there like often, or like the rituals are like bad. right? Like They leave a lot of space for misunderstanding. And I think, you know, the thing about, sexualized labor or erotic labor is like part of the ritual when you're a sex worker you know if you know you are one is privileged enough to have some amount of choice you know over the way one does the work is that you get to be remunerated for the sexual or erotic work on your own terms right Mm -hmm. at your relatively your own rates but when you are just out in the world and being called and then needing to manage that right on the subway as many of us do managing it or even like when you are married maybe and like one's partner is like making advances expecting to be sexually gratified you know because you're married um, and one is managing that well then that happens you know at all times in all ways there actually is often no negotiation of like what the boundaries are and all the work is put on like the individual And then we don't get any money for it, (laughs) you know, like, and and I think, you know, that is, it's indicative of just how like, it just bleeds everywhere, right? Like, if you are a person who is expected to do erotic labor, which is, again, like most of the gender diverse kinds of people, then you're just doing it all. The, it's like it's an entire economy. Mm-hmm. It's like it's part of the way the world works in, in similar ways to, you know, when when second wave feminism pointed out that women were doing, you know, all the domestic labor mm-hmm. that was going unpaid and it was the economy rested upon it. I actually really believe that the world functions upon unpaid erotic labor, too, and if we were more conscious of that, and you know, didn't have so much sex negativity that prevented us from talking about it. Then I think we would be living in a, in a very different society. Mm.
1: All right, so let, let's talk about value for sex workers. There's a way that you, like you said, like you claim that value, where you you're at least free to set your own rates, and it's stuff that you might do every day in some way or another that yeah. you're actually saying, "No, I, I expect to get paid for this." Yes, <laughs> it, it's interesting to me that like. This is value. This is valuing who we are in some ways that we're we're putting a monetary number behind and and claiming in a capitalistic sense like this is what I deserve for my time, energy, whatever. And mm-hmm. for those of us who are trying to figure out how to decapitalize our minds or decapitalize our our value, there's this weird paradox between sex work or like any sort of paid erotic labor being something that actually counterintuitively helps with that you know Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. by being able to take control so in my brain i was i was thinking about that about my own journey of like learning to love my body because people are willing to pay for it which is weird oh yes um Mm. but then there's the whole other side of it which is like this spiritual value of like claiming one's divinity that queer people and sex workers sort of like own in a way and i guess i'm curious to you like they they seem to overlap they overlap in your work you know of
0: Mm -hmm, absolutely yeah so
1: what comes to mind about those two types of values that you're Mm. you're learning to claim in your own way you know
0: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. this is like I don't know. I'm just so happy that you asked this question. You know, I've done so many interviews of this book, but nobody would think to ask this question unless they had done the work. You know, like, sure. that's so beautiful. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, we were talking a little bit before about like, you know, to me and I think to lots of people, like the experience of queerness is like yeah, like a um like a reclamation of one's own divinity, right? Like there is just this knowing inside the body that you're supposed to be doing things in a certain way or like with other people, right? And It is undeniable. It's transcendent. It transforms you. It changes your relationships. And um, I think sex work is the same or similar because in some way, everyone has that inside of them Mm -hmm. it is about the erotic Mm -hmm. right like the erotic drives all of the middle-aged suburban dads or you know and all the other people right to you know seek out what is missing and what they think often is that what's missing is like i don't know a hot skinny blonde or like whatever type of you know body you know they're they're wanting but what they are really looking is for something inside of themselves right and Mm -hmm. queers and sex workers tend to know this because in order to facilitate people's journey there we have to do it for ourselves you know and of course there's always exceptions right like you know um survival sex work can have some traumatic elements to it so can being queer right like yeah um it's not like it's all beautiful and amazing but but there is a beautiful and amazing arc to it if we are you know given enough space and agency and resources uh you know to to pursue that um and so when i think about like the capitalist value you know i think the capitalist part is like in some way you know incidental like hmm. it's um it is symbolic of uh, like a manifestation of how the erotic is life and life giving and like transformative um and because we live in capitalism, people pay us the money for that, you know, life-giving, transformative experience. And that's what we use to give life to ourselves in the groceries way, right, or the rent way. But I think, you know, people would be called toward queerness, of course, you know, regardless of, of the... Uh, economic kind of place we lived in, and I actually believe that's true of, of sex work as well, and like sexuality. Um, I think there's a lot of Marxists who like to say, well, if we lived in perfect communism, we wouldn't have any sex workers, and I just think that's not true. Like, <laughs> yeah, I think there, you know, there's a transcendent function to being an erotic worker, and uh, like there is deep value in that. And you know, one day when we, you know, achieve you know, uh, you know socioeconomic revolution, I think that that transcendent function will still be there and so will the value of it
1: yeah I love that I agree I mean and I think there's so many people too that have come out of sex work as survival and gone on to different careers and still maintain their client base because of the connection you know oh yeah so yeah yeah, there's something special about it so I sent in my email I'd asked if you'd be willing to to read a piece from your collection are you are you down for that I am indeed. Sweet. Yes.
0: <laughs> Perfect. Okay. Well, I mean, I feel like I should read, like, the one of the sex work ones.
1: <laughs> I mean, I was going to ask, but then I'm like, you know, I, I really want to see what she just comes up with on her own, so.
0: <laughs> totally, totally. Um, well, I mean, yeah, I would love to read one of the sex work ones, and... Yeah, I'm going to read the one that's like to the Johns. Um, It's a standout. (laughs) Uh, People, yeah, I don't know. It's funny. I think it's the most commented on poem in the book, you know, Um, which makes me so happy. So this is to the Johns. This is for the Jasons, the Daves, the Matthews, the Johns the peters the pauls the andrews the toms why so many of you insist on pseudonyming yourselves after apostles is a delicious mystery i'll never fully understand you're no saints that's for sure not when you haggled and scoffed and turned up your noses at an honest whore's rates not when you made three-hour appointments and then never showed up not when you demanded more bang for your buck left shitty reviews deriding a woman's body on the hobbyist forums no you certainly weren't holy men then not when you robbed us not when you raped us not when you got just a little too attached and stalked us for days sent us pleading emails from a hundred fake addresses no sir there was certainly nothing sanctified about that and yet most of you are courteous and many kind so many of you are gentle and generous full of the desire to give full of longing to receive as well terrified at the prospect all of you beneath the surface terrified and tender and in that frightened tenderness yes of grace dear john dear jason dear matthew dear paul i thought i knew about men before i became a whore i knew stalking i knew violence i knew abandonment i knew rape i thought i might as well get paid for it here's what i didn't know that i could get paid to be treated like my attention was important that an hour of my time was worth $300 or more, that my beauty, my body, my intelligence, my humor, my hands could open one of you up and make you human again. Dear Jason, you were a 28-year-old banker who just wanted to spend some time with a woman who loved your soft cock. Dear Bartholomew, you were a 45-year-old writer struggling with loneliness and alcoholism, and you spent most of our time talking with clothes on. Dear Peter, you were a 72-year-old retiree on a fixed income who still somehow found $600 to spend on me in one weekend, and the first thing you wanted to do was slow dance. Dear Thomas, you were a 67-year-old farmer struggling with his young son's addiction issues. You brought me cherry tomatoes from your garden. Dear Simon, you were an aspiring journalist who brought me a different gift every time i still keep the black candle on a table by my bed dear philip you ran away the first time i opened the door only to come back sheepishly an hour later dear matthew i'm sorry i couldn't replace your wife dear andrew you gave me a one thousand dollar tip so i'd spend the night with you one week before your wedding i hope that somehow you are happy dear james you are my first ever clergyman and i am so so honored that you chose me to sin with dear johns This is for the sweet spirit we found together. The part I saw of you as age and trauma melted beneath the heat of our touch, revealing the transcendent gasping, singing, moaning, sobbing, glorious, naked beauty of you. Why does a man come to see a whore? He comes to find the light inside himself. And I saw that light. I still see it in you. Remember your light, dear Johns. Keep your light alive. The world needs more of it.
1: Hmm. I love how much... The world just seems to see people that go to see prostitutes as immoral, you know, and there's just so many beautifully tender reasons why, besides just this like carnal lust that people think that they have, you know, (laughs) and I don't know, I love that it just captures it so beautifully that like, no, there's, there's so many, if you peel back that onion, there are so many tender reasons why people seek these connections, you know, and you have to be open to it somehow.
0: Absolutely.
1: What did like seeing the divine in men in sex work, how did it change your perspective on men in general?
0: Oh my God. I mean, I think that was like the biggest thing for me, like, and it's still evolving, you know, as I get older, like, honestly it was transcendent you know like there i am in my like shitty 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 studio apartment you know doing full service or you know massage and like you know the man would be you know normal or like bad like to start and then the deeper you know one went into the onion like the closer one gets to this like you know kind of amazing thing and it feels like this like i got to see inside like some kind of like really dazzling light you know, and you know the light is me, like the sex worker, and it's also the light is them, like the mm. the client, and I'm still like kind of i think you know it's one of those experiences you have to kind of unpack for for years but I mean, on a very base level, I think what I learned was that men were human beings. Like, I, I think mm-hmm. I had actually really completely lost that. Like, I was like, they're monsters, you know, they're awful, you know. And I was attracted to men, but I was like, it's like a curse. Like, you know, I'm attracted to these horrible demons. Um, and I mean, you know, I th- it was only through doing sex work and being exposed to such a wide variety of men in so many ages, so many experiences, so many desires. And I have to say, you know, Yeah, like, I had had a very narrow experience of men before that, right? Like, based on certain class or, like, race kind of culture kind of situations where I was always in a position where whoever the men were around me, they were um, empowered over me, right? Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. to get to see, you know, another angle on men and so many more kinds of men, like, you know, just actually, like, allowed me to understand that like what i am attracted to in men is like not this horrible you know demonic thing but like human beings and i think this is where it loops back into like falling in love with ourselves i don't think that those of us who are attracted to men can actually like i i I don't think that there is like a way to resolve that Mm -hmm. (laughs) inside Mm -hmm. ourselves until we acknowledge that what we are in love with is not something bad right Mm -hmm. like that our love is not bad and this is true for you know people you know whoever you love like you know our, our attractions are not sinful are not harmful are not dirty right there are harmful shameful acts that can occur but you know what we love is um is good and and is beautiful and that's what sex work, you know, did for me, which is pretty cool.
1: Yeah. I want to, I was thinking about this. I I would love to end by talking about the divinity of trans women. (laughs) Oh, (laughs) yes, please. We spent a lot of time talking about men because of sex work, because those are most of the clients. But like, I mean, a a lot of the book and a lot of the journey is, it's interesting to me. I feel like inside of queer culture, there's this sort of, over-the-top necessary very loud vocal acknowledgement specifically like centering trans femmes that trans femmes are the queens like trans femmes Mm -hmm. are goddesses it's there but it's there to counterbalance so much of the world like denying it so specifically in the book like i guess with with a very loud war going on about the value of trans women and and the divinity of trans women what what were you trying to say differently in this book like does that make sense you No. Know.
0: oh completely yeah. yes yes i mean that's the thing right like i am like an old school feminist in so many ways mm-hmm. like yes we spent so much time our home man but like we could talk way longer about, you know, women, people of other genders, you know, I'm like, okay, yes, like, you know, there are and should continue to be, you know, hundreds of thousands of podcasts about the the divinity of women and, you know, gender diverse people. When it comes to trans women, what we get is this, like, like, I really perceive trans women, and particularly trans women of color, of course, all the intersectional layers Mm -hmm. come into play here, right? But I really see um, the trans feminine as, like, in many ways, a kind of like a global cultural scapegoat, mm-hmm. right? Like, of course, you know, there are many cultures that have valued, you know, trans femininity or, you know, you know, in, indigenous forms of gender, right? Like um, that we might today call trans femininity, you know, in, in different ways. But, you know, in the colonized world, there's just this intense violence that is placed onto the bodies of trans feminine people and trans women. And, You know, um, what I really think about when I think about that is like, it is all of the hatred like that is directed toward women. It's all of misogyny, plus all of the fear that is directed toward men right like it's all the fear of the patriarchy and the hatred of women you know together in one thing that trans women experience and so what you see when you see the hateful rhetoric directed at trans women is um like all of the vicious kind of like body shaming and like thin shaming right kind of and sex shaming that is usually directed at women and it is also this rhetoric of like and they're dangerous and so they should be killed right like um which is like the kind of rhetoric we usually see directed at usually like marginalized men right like And so it's all of this together, hatred and fear. And I'm just like, I mean, how could you not be the recipient of that and survive and somehow not be like a divine, glorious thing, right? (laughs) Like if you're going to live in that world and still be yourself, right? God, there must be something so cool about you. Mm. (laughs) And so I just, you know, I wanted the book to be a world Mm. where everybody saw what I see when Mm. I look at trans women, the miracle. That we are alive
1: yeah that's beautiful including yourself and i mean you end as a in a letter to yourself can you talk about that writing to yourself in that way
0: oh thank you yeah you know so that that letter is you know it's like a hypothetical right like it's a letter to me but from the perspective of someone in the future like a mm-hmm. trans femme in the future and there's another earlier letter that's like me writing to a trans femme in the future just writing back and forth across time thing you know and I actually, you know, that for me is like, it's something old, like in my life old, like when I was a teenager, I did a lot of like, I guess at the time we would have called them QTPOC, right? Like queer trans people of color writing groups for adolescents and whatever. And there was a lot of talk about ancestry and Mm -hmm. sci-fi, right? The future Mm -hmm. and the past. Mm -hmm. And, you know, like queers and trans people, we're so erased from the past by colonization. (laughs) And so erased from the future by violence, right? And so... There's, like, the practice of doing that kind of time thing is acknowledging that we're not alone in temporality. And then just on a, like, a visceral, spiritual level, like, I think there's something there about wanting to leave something um, for future generations and also wanting to receive something from future generations, like, to know that... um, our divinity, even if we don't win the culture war, we don't like survive the apocalypse or whatever, right? like that there is like meaning to what we're doing that will ripple across generations.
1: Mm. I just read um Rest is Resistance by Trisha Hersey.
0: Yes, I love that book. Okay, yes. good. The Map Ministry. Yeah.
1: <laughs> and I I love I love just the concept of the dream space. Capital D, Mm. capital S. And she, I think she invokes Octavia Butler as somebody that she meets in the dream space, but, you know, also takes us there. And um, Mm -hmm. I think one of the things I keep thinking about is that, like, you know, when we're envisioning these things for ourselves, that it feels just like, it feels just like fantasy, like make believe, but it's also a space where our ancestors meet us, you know, and has just this legitimacy that, you know, it's another part of claiming divinity is claiming that the dream space is is real and has value,
0: right? Oh yeah, oh I love that so much. Yeah, yes, <laughs> I'm gonna remember that forever.
1: <laughs> you can claim, I mean, give her see the credit for that. So, end however you want to end. But like, what does the dream space look like for you? Of like, what's the what's the beautiful future that you know, I really love you. You were talking about faith and you were talking about what what is the point of faith if we're not envisioning this future for ourselves. And I think that's just such a great way of looking at it. It's not heaven. It's not this, like, Mm-mm. second coming. It's it's MLK's beloved community, you know? yeah,
0: Yeah. Yeah. And, like, complex, right? Like, the beloved community is full of... Fractious complications, yeah, which is right. you know part of what makes it so you know lovable and you know, fatiguing at the same yeah, time, for sure, yeah, <laughs> yeah, uh, but like, well. <sighs> You know, in many ways, I'm, like, a pessimist about this. And in many ways, I'm an optimist. And, mm. like, the pessimist in me always says, like, uh, to the optimist, like, uh, like you like, know, don't be ridiculous, you know, <laughs> or, like, don't be so naive. But I have to be naive. You know, I, to talk about sci-fi, I love this quote from the late, great Ursula you know, K. Le Guin, who, you know, I think one of her last, you know, award speeches, you know, she says, you know, um, we live in capitalism. Its power seems, you know, inescapable. But so did the divine right of kings and i just like i don't know i love that like not to be all like progress moves us forward because clearly it doesn't always but i mean there is the, just the fact that revolutionary resistance has made miracles before you know like like enslaved peoples have freed themselves before uh, you know um oppressed groups have overthrown dictatorships um we don't live under the divine right of kings that we live under you know billionaires who think they are but like whatever like you know like uh, we you know we we have done it and we can do it again and i think that's like the dream space for me is like you know the, our ancestors did it and you know they didn't make paradise happen but they made something happen and so can we mm-hmm. And uh, that is that is the value of, of that space.
1: Are you working on a sci-fi? Any sci-fi? <laughs> or yes, I am. Yeah, yeah.
0: <laughs>
1: that's awesome. All right. Something to look forward to then. That's great.
0: Thank you.